Welcome to Reading to Kids podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Peyton. And we're here to read to you or with you. We know that sometimes moms and dads don't always have the time or the motivation to read to their kids each night, and we know how important it is. So, on those nights that you're not in the mood, we're going to do it for you. Can't wait to read with you. Good job, Peyton. High five. Okay, well, we have a goal of doing how many episodes a night? Three. So we're not going to jibber-jab. We're not going to talk. We're just going to go for it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Chapter two of The Name of This Book is Secret. True, I cannot tell you the year this story begins or even the month, but I see no harm in telling you the day. It was a Wednesday, a humble, remarkable day, the middle child in the weekday family. A Wednesday has to work hard to be noticed. Most people let each one pass without a comment. But no, but not the heroine of our story. She is the kind of girl who takes notice of things that others don't. Meet Cassandra. Wednesday is her favorite day. She believes it's just when you least expect something earth-shattering to happen that it does. According to the Greek myth, the original Cassandra was a princess of ancient Troy. She was very beautiful, and Apollo, god of the sun, fell in love with her. When she rejected him, Apollo became so angry that he placed a curse on her. He gave her the power to predict the future, but he also ensured that nobody would believe her predictions. Imagine knowing that your whole world was about to be destroyed by a tornado or a typhoon, and then having nobody believe you when you told them. What a misery. Unlike Cassandra of the myth, the girl who... who Figures in her story is not a prophet. She cannot see into the future, nor can she be cursed by a god, or at least not to my knowledge. She resembles a prophet in that she is always predicting disaster. Earthquakes, hurricanes, plagues. She is an expert in all things terrible, and she sees evidence of them everywhere. That is why I am calling her Cassandra, or Cass for short. As you know, I cannot describe Cass in detail. But this much I will tell you. From the outside, Cass looks like a typical 11-year-old girl. Her major distinguishing feature is that she has a rather large pointy ear. Or she has rather large pointy ears. And before you tell me that I shouldn't have told you about the ears, let me explain that she almost always covers her ears with her hair or with the hat. So, So chances are you'll never see them. Well, she may look like other girls, Cass, in other respects, is very unaverage sort of person. She doesn't play games involving fortune-telling or jump rope of strings of any kind. She doesn't even watch television very often. She doesn't own a single pair of suede boots lined with fleece. She wouldn't even want a pair unless they were, her water- they were waterproof and could protect her from the snowstorm. As you can tell, Cass is very practical and she has no time for trivial matters. Her motto, be prepared. Her mission, to make sure that she and her friends and family survive all the disasters that befall them. Cass is a survivalist. These are things that Cass carries in her backpack every day. A flashlight, a compass, a silver mylar blanket, surprisingly warm if you haven't tried one, also has useful reflective properties. A box of juice, usually grape, doubles as ink in a pinch. Bubble gum, it's for sticking for its sticking value and because chewing helps her concentrate. Cass's 
patented super chip trail mix. Chocolate chips, peanut butter chips, banana chips, potato chips, and raisins. And no raisins ever. Ugh, good, I hate raisins. A topographic map. All of the closest deserts and mountain areas as well as, as Minocrisia and Galapagos Islands. Rope, toolkit, first aid kit, dusk mask, extra pair of socks and shoes in case the flash floods and the weather conditions change. Matches, technically not allowed at school. A plastic knife, because a jackknife is really not allowed. And school books and homework. When she remembers, which is not very often, she keeps forgetting to put schoolwork in her school in her supplies checklist. <laughs> On the evidence of these items in her backpack, you might guess that Cass has led a very adventurous life, but you could be wrong. The truth is, up until this point of the story when it begins, none of the disasters that she had predicted had ever fallen be befallen her. There'd been no earthquakes at school, no none strong enough to shatter a window anyways the mildew of her mother's shower turned out just that not just to be that not the killer mold Cass predicted and that child spinning around on grass did not have mad cow disease he was just having a good time Cass didn't exactly mind that her predictions hadn't come true after all she didn't wish for disaster but she couldn't help wishing people took her concerns more seriously instead Everyone was always reminding her about the boy who cried wolf. Naturally, they took that story to mean that she couldn't have cried wolf when there weren't any boys. But Cass knew that the true moral of the story was that the boy was right, and there were wolves around, and that they'd get you in the end if you didn't watch out. Better to cry wolf over and over again than to never cry wolf at all. all of all the people in the world, only two paid attention to Cass's predictions. Grandpa Larry and Grandpa Wayne. Larry and Wayne weren't Cass's original biological grandfathers. They were her substitute grandfathers. Larry had been Cass's mother's history teacher in high school, and they'd remained friends ever since. Since neither of Cass's original grandfathers were around, Cass's mother asked Larry and Wayne to fill in. Larry and Wayne lived around the corner from Cass in an old abandoned fire station. The bottom floor where the fire engines had been kept, they had converted into an antique store and warehouse. Their living quarters were upstairs where the old where in the old days the firemen had slept in between fires. Every Wednesday after school, Cass was supposed to work in their shop until her mother called to say dinner was ready. But in truth, very little work got done at the fire station. You're just in time for tea, Grandpa Larry would say whenever she arrived. Grandpa Larry wasn't British, but he'd spent time in England England, when he was in the army and he'd developed a serious tea habit. Cass thought Larry's elaborate tea rituals were a little silly. <sighs> but she loved the cookies Larry made. He called them biscuits and the stories he told while their tea was brewing. By now, Cass suspected that most of his stories were exaggerated, if not entirely made up but they always included useful information, like how to put up a tent in a sandstorm or how to milk a camel. On the particular Wednesday that this story begins, Larry was showing Cass how to make a compass by placing a cork in a bowl of water. The compass was almost complete, and the cork just about pointed north when her grandfather's basset hound, Sebastian, started barking so noisily that the water shook the edge of the bowl. Sebastian was blind, and now that he was growling, 
Now that he was growing old, he was nearly deaf as well, but he had the neest sense of smell. Oh, the key, I'm so sorry. The keenest sense of smell in town, and everyone called him Sebastian the Seeing Nose Dog, and he always knew when visitors were about to enter, enter the shop. Fire drill, called Grandpa Wayne from down. For Grandpa Larry's compass recipe, turn to the appendix that is at the end of this book, and by the way, not in your body. So in this book, that's really cool. They have little asterisks, which is the little star, and it says, here, if you see an asterisk, you're going to go to the back of the book. Below, which was their code when a customer has arrived, guess the compass will have to wait, grumbled Grandpa Larry. Now get down, smoke rises, so the best way to keep breathing is to stay low to the ground. He and Cass crouched down and, <sighs> and pulled their shirts over their noses as if the room were filling with smoke. Larry pointed to the station's old brass fire pole. Ladies first. Cass eagerly grabbed the pole and stepped on to the opening of the floor. Wait, said Larry. Promise not to tell your mother. Promise, said Cass, already starting to slide. Despite the fact that it was their job, Cass's grandfathers couldn't bear to sell anything. They loved all of their things too much. As a result, their store was crammed so tight that it was an amazing huge maze with huge walls of furniture. Every surface was covered with stuff they'd collected from old clown paintings to mechanical monkeys to broken typewriters. <sighs> to broken typewriters to things you couldn't describe if you found. By the time Larry and Cass had navigated their way through the front doors, way through the front door was opening to reveal a short pair of legs staggering under the weight of an enormous card bo cardboard box. As, as soon as he saw the box, Larry rushed to the doorway and threw his arms across, bearing the way. No, 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 bad Gloria, he said sternly, as if he were addressing a dog, not a person under a box. I told you the last time, no more things. Look around, we're stuffed to the gills. At least let me put this down for a minute, complained the voice of the unseen woman. Taking pity on her, Larry grabbed hold of the box and placed it in the threshold. <sighs> Oh, a small round woman with bright yellow with a bright yellow suit scowled at him. This was Gloria Fortune. Don't you, don't you even want to hear where it comes from? She asked him, still red faced and breathing hard under under her tall beehive hairdo. Such fascinating things. Well, never mind. She said brightly. Is there a dumpster in back? Larry almost choked. No, I mean, yes, there's a dumpster, but you're not, you wouldn't throw the box away? He asked as if Gloria were threatening murder. Gloria smiled and sh slyly as she twisted a curl of hair she had sprung loose. Sorry, Larry, you're my last resort. I certainly don't have any room. Larry hesitated. In that case, why don't you come inside for a cup of tea and I'll just take a peek before you do anything rash. Gloria grinned victoriously. You won't regret it, she said, entering the store. Sheepishly, Larry picked up the box and followed her back inside. Sorry, he whispered to Cass. This should only take a second or a minute or five or ten or twenty minutes at the most. Gloria, as Cass learned over, the, over her third 
Or was it her fourth cup of tea was a real estate agent of a probate specialist, meaning she sold houses after their owners passed away. She was, in fact, a real estate agent for the dead. Gloria loved to gossip, and Larry was always ready to listen with to a ghoulish tales about her dead clients. Wayne, who was a retired auto mechanic, always left to go fix something when Gloria was around. As for the box of stuff that he just brought in, it came from a home of a strange reclusive man, some kind of magician or something. What I call a real old coot, said Gloria. Watch it, Gloria, said Grandpa Larry. Some of us are pretty cootish ourselves. The magician, Gloria continued, obliviously, had died very suddenly several months into their in a kitchen fire, the source of which was never determined. He had no known relationship or survivors. Not a single friend left, poor man. Because the magician's house was so off the beaten path, his death might never have been discovered if it not had been for his garden gardener investigating the terrible smell emanating from his kitchen. Cass nodded. Knowingly, at this bit of information, the smell of decomposing flesh can be very strong, she said, trying to show she was familiar with cases of this kind. Although, I, I hastened to the point out, her knowledge of corpses was not yet firsthand. True. True, sniffed Gloria. But actually, what the gardener was smelling was something else. Sulfurous, he described, like... A uh, huevos postratus. What does that mean? That means rotten eggs in Spanish, said Cass, who was studying the language at school. I thought it meant talky girl, said Gloria, pointedly. Cass considered to it wise not to say anything more, and she excused herself to do some homework, pretending she was no longer interested in the story of the dead magician. She, But she continued to listen, or you might call it, eavesdrop while Gloria finished telling her story. In fact, almost nothing of the magician's body was left, smelly or otherwise. The fire had been so intense that only a few of his teeth remained. See, I warned you about teeth. Curiously, while the magician's magician's entire kitchen was incinerated, the rest of the house was left unscathed, as if the fire had gone out as quickly as it had started. According to Gloria, the source of the noxious aroma was never found, and traces of it still lingered. She hoped it wouldn't hamper the sale of the house, which was going to be difficult enough thanks to the house's quirky and offbeat character. Gloria pronounced these words as if they were slightly distasteful, but Cass, not knowing precisely what they meant, thought that they sounded just grand. She decided that if she bought a house, she would want to buy one just like the magician's. After Gloria left, Wayne rejoined the others to rifle through the magician's belongings. Mostly, the contents of the box were disappointing. What Gloria had described as a contraption for mixing potions turned out to be an ordinary kitchen mixer, and what she had guessed was something to make objects disappear was, in fact, a piece of exercise equipment. They thought they'd extracted everything they could when Sebastian started barking excitedly. The blind dog circled the box, sniffing like it was like there was something inside he really wanted, or something inside he was really scared of, or both. 
Cass pushed aside the last remaining bits of the newspaper at the bottom and saw something they'd missed earlier. Another box. Sebastian's bark grew louder and louder as she pulled it out. It was a box, flat, about the size and shape of a briefcase, and fitted with brass hinges and fastenings. It was made of a darkish reddish stripy type of wood, and it was carved with a design of swirling vines and flowers surrounding an uplifted face. The face was shown in the profile, inhaling what looked like a curling smoke. Rosewood, Wayne said, taking the box from Cass so that he could examine it more closely. Too large for a cigar box. Maybe a cutlery case? Larry nodded. Probably. Art Nuevo design? Maybe about a hundred years old? French? He took the box out from Wayne and held it up to look at the box. No markings. Looks like one of a kind. Can I open it? asked Cass. She knew from experience they could go on for hours if she didn't stop them. Wayne nudged Larry, and Larry handed her the box. Go ahead, he said, although he had no doubt that he would have liked to open it himself. With the substitute grandfather peering over her shoulder, Cass carefully sprang the latch and raised the lid from their gas. Cass could tell they'd never seen anything like it before. She certainly hadn't. The interior of the box was upholstered in lustrous purple velvet, nestled in the velvet and arranged in four concentrated semicircles were dozens of sparkling crystal vials. Most of these vials, Cass later counted 99 of, the, 99 of them, contained liquids of various colors, lavender water, amber oil, alcohol, and alarming shades of green. Other vials were filled with powders of various degrees of fineness, others with uh, flower petals and leaf herbs and spices, shards of wood and bark and even dirt. One vial had a single strand of hair. What is this? Some kind of chemistry set cast? Wondered out loud. Hmm, could be, said Larry. Did you know that in England, pharmacists are called chemists? Touching the velvet for the first time, Cass noticed something that had been hidden by a fold, a small brass plaque which someone had engraved the words, the symphony of smells. The symphony of smells? Maybe it's perfume-making kit, he suggested. Cass pulled out a vial and opened it. A sharp citrus aroma was released into the air. Lemon, she guessed. She handed the vial to Wayne and pulled out another. They spent the next few minutes opening the vials and guessing the scents they had, contain they had co contained. Mint, lime, root beer, sassafras, Larry called it. Wet wool, old socks. Freshly, grown, freshly mown, gra mown grass. I think this is a kind of smelling game, said Cass, who would enjoy herself immensely to train your nose, like if you were a detective so that you would know what you're smelling in an emergency or like the scene of a crime. Whatever it is, my nose is getting very tired, said Larry. Just one more, said Cass, after picking up a vial at the end of the second row. There was a hairline crack in the vial, but it was near and it was nearly empty, save for a light dusting yellow powder. She opened it and recognized the smell immediately. It was the smell of huevos poderos rotten eggs. And that's it. That's chapter two. Payne, did you already crash? Mm -mm. Uh, she's like half asleep. Okay, can't wait for chapter three.